what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Welcome back to 1050 Bascom. Today, we would like to welcome Professor John Peavy House, Chair of the Political Science Department, back to the podcast to talk about his summer trip to Israel, this upcoming academic year, and President Biden's attempt to broker a Saudi-Israeli deal before the end of the year and the start of a 2024 presidential election cycle. Professor Peavy House, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with just a few questions about your summer and the upcoming academic year. Um, how was your summer, and yeah, what are you looking forward to uh, this coming school year? Excellent. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, summer was too short. I'm sure every you know everyone thinks that at this point. Um, it's like what? It's August first. Um, this summer, what did I do this summer? I did some work. Uh, I got some writing done on some research I'm working on on environmental treaties and human rights treaties. I did some family travel, I did some work travel, which we'll talk about later, uh, went to the Middle East. Um, uh, coached a lot of baseball this summer. Uh, I spent a lot of time, Amy knows, Amy knows that, <laughs> coaching a lot of baseball. Um, you know, herding cats and 10-year-old baseball players, kind of all the same thing. Um, <laughs> but it was great. Um, so third and final year share. So I'm very excited. We're going to be recruiting some new faculty this year, which is always, like, I think, the funnest thing that we do. Um, we hired two faculty last year that will be joining us. Uh, one in, actually, we had three faculty in the last couple of years. One coming in international relations, two new folks coming uh, in American politics that teach in the area of like, race and ethnic politics. Uh, and then we're going to be hiring two new comparative politics scholars this year, one hopefully who does comparative political economy and one who does uh, comparative political violence. So, um, so that's always uh, a super exciting thing to do as chair. Uh, other chair plans, uh, we are trying to expand some of our undergraduate programming in terms of courses. Uh, we are putting together a, uh, a, a, like a social event, which you'll we'll all be getting emails about uh, in the end of September. We're trying to bring together faculty and students for just like a welcome back, shindig type of thing, taco bar included. Um, and so uh, that'll, that'll be coming. And then otherwise, just kind of, you know, we've got a lot of momentum, I feel like, as a department right now. Our major's been growing. Uh, we've got, uh, we're close to our record number of majors. Uh, we've got a tremendous number of students in classes. A lot of classes are really full, which is why we're trying to hire some more. We just kind of expand, expand the program and keep things going. Uh, so yeah, that's, you say it's the final year. I've got 10 months left. But who's counting? Um, <laughs> but but it's been great, and faculty are great, and the students have been amazing. Grad program is going really well right now. Um, we've been placing some grad students in some really great places, and so yeah. So you know, keep the trains running on time. It's like you know, goal number one is chair. All right, awesome. Well, keep an eye out for that email about the taco bar. So let's jump into some issues. In particular, right. Biden's efforts to broker a Saudi-Israel deal. Can you maybe start by giving our listeners a little bit of historical background on this topic? Maybe a little bit of a Saudi-Israel political history 101 would be great as well as the history of the U.S. role. 
Okay, yeah, for sure. So, uh, I never know how far back to go. Um, you know, when, when Israel was created kind of by the UN, was founded in 47, and then fought this war of independence, you know, they were immediately, you know, uh, the Israeli settlements there, the Israeli uh, areas there, and I don't mean settlements like we currently mean settlements, but the Israeli population, the Jewish population of the region after World War II um, was immediately attacked by neighbors, and immediately sort of all of the Arab states kind of in, in unison decided they weren't going to recognize Israel, they weren't going to work with Israel, and they were going to kind of treat Israel as this pariah state in the region. And then, of course, there's been multiple wars. Uh, you know, there's a, a kind of a war with, uh, between Egypt and Israel in 56 over Suez with the British and the French involved. And, of course, there's the 67 war, the 73 war. Israel goes into Lebanon in 81. This whole time, and those are all kind of Israel and its neighbors, right? Um, the whole time, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, you know, Kuwait, etc., Iran, Iraq, really, even though obviously Iran's not an Arab state, um, had kind of, you know, kind of backed off. And they had very little relationship with Israel. They weren't militarily hostile, although Iraq was, was certainly involved in the 67 war. Um, but they were... Uh, but they were just sort of diplomatically, it's like, we just don't want to have anything to do with Israel. Well, then starting in 79, when Egypt's, Egypt makes peace with Israel, and then eventually you get the Oslo Agreement between the Palestinians and Israelis, Jordan makes peace with Israel, Morocco recently made peace with Israel, and then the big, uh, kind of where all of this then, what the current event sprouts from, uh, is under the Trump administration, you have what's called the Abraham Accords, right? Which is the peace deal between a couple of the, uh, a couple of the Gulf states, UAE, most importantly, I think, uh, and Israel basically saying Israel and, and UAE are going to normalize, they're going to have peace, they're going to do business with one another, they're going to treat each other like normal countries. This then began a whole discussion of like, well, the most important Arab state in that part of the world is Saudi Arabia. They obviously have tremendous oil resources, they have diplomatic resources, they buy a lot of American weapons. Um, would the Saudis, in fact, then uh, normalize and make peace with Israel? And initially, everyone, and of course, what we think we know is that the Saudis, through the Emiratis, through the UAE, have been talking to Israel. So it's not like, I mean, there's nothing official that goes on between the Saudis and the Israelis, but there's a lot of backdoor stuff uh, between Israel and Saudi Arabia that happens through the, the Emirates and, frankly, through the United States. So then enter the U.S., right? And so uh, people start saying, well, maybe the U.S., goes the, goes the narrative, has brokered a lot of the Middle East peace deals. We eventually get involved in Oslo under Clinton, under Carter, we were obviously involved in um, uh, uh, the, the Camp David Accords um, over, you know, Egypt withdrawing from the Sinai and making peace with Israel. So the bottom line is people expect the U.S. to kind of be involved in this. I have thoughts on whether that's ultimately a good thing or not, but we'll, we'll kind of leave it from there. So, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of, that's the background. So then, so then we kind of get to this current moment where it's like, okay, Israel's starting to knock off these states in terms of peace deals. Are the Saudis going to be next? Yeah, we'd like to engage several factors that we've read seem to play into U.S. interests. Yeah. And perhaps you can help us understand kind of why they're important in these deliberations. Sure. Um, and we can kind of start, you just brought up the kind of the Saudi side. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you kind of reference that there is a little bit something going on there that you find interesting. Yeah. So there's both sort of internal Saudi politics and it's how the U.S. has been responding to that. So, um so Saudi Arabia has a king, uh, you know, they're, they're a monarchical system. The king's family is incredibly large. Uh, there are a lot of people around the king and that sort of uh, governance system that they have. The most important kind of advisor that the king has is Mohammed bin Salman, 
or MBS as we like to call him. Um, MBS is, for all intents and purposes, the current king of Saudi Arabia. He's making all the important diplomatic calls. He's making all the important domestic calls. So here's what's, I mean, so much interesting stuff. So first of all, where does Saudi Arabia get all of its influence? Like, if Saudi Arabia didn't have oil, no one would care about Saudi Arabia, right? They have nothing else. They have oil. Insane. And, and the Emiratis, their neighbors, about 15 years ago, saw, started to see the writing on the wall, and they're like, wait a minute. The green economy is coming. Like we're moving away from fossil fuels. What then? And this is part of the Abraham Accords, right? It's it's what essentially was the exchange was like, Israel is going to normalize with the UAE. The UAE has a lot of capital. They have money. Israel has technology. They have programmer jobs, right? And that technology. And so the UAE and Israel are doing this. Saudi kind of wants to do the same thing, right? So that's part of their incentive is they see a future where no one wants fossil fuels or very few people want fossil fuels. And then what do they do? So what does MBS have to do? And what do the Saudis have to do? They have to either make peace with folks like Israel, they have to get close to China, which they're also starting to do, they have to get make sure they're close to the United States. Here's the problem. As a, you know, Saudi Arabia is about as far from a Western democracy, democratic system as you could imagine, right? Um, women have few to little rights. Uh, there are obviously no elections, there's sort of no press freedom, like nothing. So MBS is domestically slowly, slowly starting to liberalize. You might have read the headline a couple summers ago that women can now drive in Saudi Arabia. They're opening movie theaters, right? They're doing that because they know investors, whether they're Chinese or American or Israeli, really don't want to come and visit and hang out in a place where you can't do anything, right? Yet they have incredibly strong religious and cultural norms that this is how they should be running their country, right? And so that's this kind of domestic pull that's going on with the Saudis. Um, they also, of course, have security concerns with their neighbor, Iran. And even though China last summer kind of brokered a deal between Iran and the Saudis, they're still kind of, they're more friend, they're more enemies than friends, you know, not even frenemies, I would say. Um, and part of that goes to a historical enmity between them. Part of that goes to they're both funding opposite sides of the war in Yemen, right, which also the U.S. doesn't like. And then, of course, in the midst of all of this, you know, Everyone's sort of looking at Saudi Arabia saying, oh, maybe they're liberalizing. Maybe they're liberalizing, you know, I'm going to forget how long ago. I'm going to forget the timing four years ago, right? The murder of Kish the Khashoggi murder, right? And the, and the Washington Post reporter, um, which the Saudis openly kind of, they deny, but of course it's the worst kept secret ever that it was MBS in particular likely ordered his assassination. And so there's this funny dance between the U.S. and the Saudis of like, we really want them to reform. We want them to behave, behave better, respect human rights. We also want them to stop Iran and be a thorn in Iran's side. We want them to keep selling us oil. Uh, and we want them to try to be nicer to the neighbors and get out of Yemen. So we, the U.S. wants a lot from Saudi Arabia. And the question is how, from a, like a diplomatic perspective, are there things that we can help them accomplish, which then gives us some leverage over them to then change domestically or make these other diplomatic efforts. So that's kind of the U.S.-Saudi story, or at least one version of it. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of this deal, um, another factor to consider is the health and stability of U.S.-Israeli ties, yes. which are now also complicated by the rise of the now very right-wing oriented Prime Minister yeah. Netanyahu, um, as well as the protests in Israel and even in the U.S. against his government. Could you expand on that a bit more for us? Yeah, for sure. So let's start with the domestic, let's start with the Israeli domestic political issue. So as you pointed out, right, in over the last three years, there's been, what, four sets of elections in Israel. So lots of elections, very unstable government, unstable coalition. 
because that country is incredibly divided right now. And I would put the, the divisions, you could, there are many, many divisions. In fact, let me talk about four, four groups in Israel. One is what I would call the traditional center or the traditional center left, uh, which is kind of the Labour Party, although the Labour Party is now kind of on the down and outs, now it's more the centrist parties that are in Israel. They kind of pretty pro-American, you know, secular by international standards, and, and the folks that are behind, you know, Startup Nation in Israel, right? Then you've got what I would call, and, the, you know, they're Zionists, uh, but they also, I would say they're out there marching for peace, but they could, they could, you could convince them that they should have a peace deal with the Palestinians. Then you've got what I would call sort of the nationalist Zionists. These are tend to be uh, more religious, like probably less secular. They're very nationalistic. Um, this is sort of the Netanyahu Likud camp. Um, and they, for example, aren't necessarily going out there and caring about peace with the Palestinians. They, in fact, want to expand settlement opportunities in the occupied West Bank. Uh, and, uh, you know, they want to be active diplomatically, but they're very, you know, they're very kind of hardline. Then they have allied with the third group, which are the Haredi, which are the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. That is the fastest growing part of the population. 15% of the Israeli population is ultra-Orthodox. 25% of the first graders are ultra-Orthodox, right? So that is the giant demographic boom that's coming. They care less about things like, and this is kind of a misnomer in the US, everyone thinks, oh, they're out there pro-settlement. They're not necessarily out there like pro-settlement, like let's kick the Palestinians out of the West Bank. What they are interested in is religious law within Israel. Uh, they want, you know, for example, daily life to be governed by religious courts, not civil courts. Uh, they want to keep their status as not having to join the military and do uh, military service. Uh, they want to keep the system going where men do not have to work and can just essentially be paid to go to yeshiva, to go to school. Um, and so those two, those latter two groups, kind of the nationalists and the ultra-Orthodox, currently have a political alliance. And it makes the people kind of in the center and the center left incredibly unhappy because they both don't like the their behavior towards like the Palestinian population, but they also don't like the non-secular view of religion that those folks have, and that those two groups have realized that they can kind of ally with each other and, and largely get what they want, and, and they form this current government. Fourth group are, of course, the Palestinians living in Israel who have sort of, I would call it pseudo-citizenship, like they are part of Israel, they can do many things in Israel, they can vote. That said, they do not and cannot serve in the military, um, and they you know, they're sort of mostly citizens, but not completely. Um, and they are a, a, also a growing block of Israeli population. And so, you know, that's those are kind of the four groups. Netanyahu is allied with those, those middle two. Um, I'll try to keep this short. Israel has no constitution, right? So all these laws that get passed by the Knesset kind of go down at, and some of them are called what are called basic laws, which are the constitution. What the current government has tried to do is, un sort of add kind of an amendment to a current basic law, a, court, a basic law, and it just what's a norm to basically say there are certain times the Supreme, there are certain decisions made by the Knesset, there are certain laws passed by the Knesset that cannot be reviewed by the court, right? And there's, because there's a standard the court has used in the past, sort of a reasonableness standard. This law is unreasonable. And that has done everything from shut down settlements to expand Palestinian rights, etc. And so all those things that the, nationalists and the religious part and it struck down religious laws as well for separation of religion and state reasons so they're trying to neuter the courts to and they've passed that law so the first is the reasonableness law 
which is the court will be limited to not use that it's unreasonable standard in a decision. Um, now the Supreme Court's hearing that case right now, right? They've heard the case. So they could strike down the law that says the Supreme Court can't hear the law, all right? Um, the scary thing that could happen, really scary thing that could happen, that if the court decides that, they will ignore the court and they will do it anyway. They will essentially dismiss the Supreme Court, right? And if that happens, I think you're looking at like a major, major civil conflict in Israel because the military, not it's not a monolithic block, but a huge swath of the military comes from that first group. They come from the center center left. Some of them come from the nationalists, for sure, but none of them come from the Haredi because they don't serve, right? And so you've got this, you know, as I said to, to a friend of mine, imagine going to a protest where you know every single person at that protest has served in the military. And has, I would not want to be a police officer at those protests, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and, and if the court decision is thrown out, I think you're going to see something close to a civil war within Israel. And I think you're going to see massive divestment of Israelis themselves just leaving. Mm -hmm. Right, because, yeah, I'll stop it. <laughs> yeah, just to expand a little bit on that, I think lots of people would be quick to jump to the conclusion that because Israel doesn't have a constitution, if the court fails in some way, people would be quick to attribute that to a failure of the system. Mm -hmm. But what I hear you're kind of saying is that the court, the system is kind of working because the court's hearing the case mm -hmm. and they do have the chance to review this law, essentially, this kind of, in a correct, kind of circular yeah. fashion. But you're saying that that essentially may not matter. To that, well, matters. that's the concern is that it may not matter. Right. I mean, look, in the U.S., right, Marbury versus Madison establishes judicial review. It's not in the Constitution, right? right? And so, like, and, 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 in, and in Israel, like, the law of basic right, the basic law about human rights was not passed until the 90s, right? So it's like, you know, it's all, it, it's, it is a very different system, but you're right, it's a great point. Like, is this an institutional failure of design? what us academics like to think about or is this just politics kind of run amok or is it some combination of the two yeah absolutely yeah so you you did kind of also mention palestinians and they're yep, obviously yep. a super important group because mm -hmm. um you know as these kind of negotiations are ongoing we've kind of seen that palestinians just aren't mentioned right and because because of their lack of recognition as a state and yep. by many countries, it kind of impedes progress towards creating a more stable Middle yep. East because until Absolutely. you can bring Palestine in, mm -hmm. um, you know, how can we kind of move towards a kind of more stable Middle East while working with this big Palestinian question? Yes, that's a, I think that for me, that's an incredibly important question. Um, unfortunately for most Israelis right now, that is not an important question at all. And in fact, kind of two interesting things. And then I want to talk about the broader context. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all of these protests against the government and against what the, uh, against Netanyahu, and these are massive protests. I mean, you know, some estimates are up to 10 to 12% of the population are out protesting. These are massive. I mean, you imagine that in the U.S., right? You'd have protests of 20 million people, right? Um, uh, you know, but, but then you look at the protests. And they're like, oh, equal rights, guarantee rights. And then you sort of ask, even the protesters, you ask like, oh, does this include Palestinians? And they're like, no, 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 don't complicate things. And in fact, at these protests themselves, if you ever look at pictures, you'll see all the protesters. And then out around the outer ring, you'll see the peace now, right? You'll see the kind of, we like Palestinians too, people. And they force them to the out because they're like, they're afraid if they become part of the narrative, they'll lose that argument, right? Which is a very sad thing. 
you know, the second thing is kind of along those lines, if you ask Israelis, like, tell me your 10 most important issues that you think about and would vote on, like number 10 will be Palestinian relations. If you ask them, what are the 15 most important, the 15th political, like it's just, it is not on their radar. Um, and there's more and more growing discussion in the U.S. about um, kind of the death of what we call the two-state solution, right? That there is no two-state solution. Now, of course, a growing number of young Palestinians, both in Israel and in the West Bank, say, fine, let's have a one-state solution. We want full rights. We don't need a special state. We don't, or we don't need our own state. Just make us full citizens. But of course, the problem with that is when you add up all the Palestinians and their population growth, and you add up all the Israelis and their population growth, Israelis would not be a majority in their own country, and then therefore you no longer have Israel as a Jewish state. So that's a non-starter for Israelis. Um, so, but but yeah, so that's so that's kind of the internal politics. The Palestinians, as you've noted, uh, have kind of been getting thrown under the bus, and that has been true for the last twenty-five years in in multiple ways, not just with what Israel's doing. And you know, Israel is continuing their settlement activity in the West Bank. Um, you know, as one uh, famous Palestinian negotiator says, how can we divide the pie if you're eating the pie um, while we're trying to divide it, you know? Um, and so that, that becomes a major diplomatic and, and political problem. Classically, the Palestinians thought that their, part of their support would come from the Arab world, right? And so then when Egypt signs an agreement, when Jordan signs an agreement, when the Emiratis sign an agreement, and none of it, and you know, the Emiratis claim that part of their agreement with Israel is that Israel will stop settlements. Well, Israel has not stopped settlements, right? They're still going. Um, and that they won't, now, they won't annex the settlements officially either. Now, they haven't annexed them yet, so maybe that did some leverage. But then the last huge country left standing are the Saudis, and that's where the Palestinian issue comes in, and back to the first question about the peace deal, is what are the Saudis going to demand of the Israelis vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, if anything? As I will say this, in my view, is my own view, political view, I think the Palestinians are constantly sold out by these Arab governments. They talk a good game, and to their own populations, that's the thing, to their own populations, they talk about how much they're doing for the Palestinians, etc. I mean, they write some checks for the Palestinian Authority, and that's about it. Like, I think that the Saudis have a chance to lure a lot of investment, to normalize things. They'll pay some lip service to the Palestinian cause, but ultimately, I think the sad fact is the Palestinians are kind of on their own right now. Uh, and I don't see, Israel has complete control over the governance of them. Um, and, you know, Gaza at this point is a humanitarian disaster, which no one's talking about. And I think, like, who's going to stand up? And, and the U.S. is also saying that we're trying to promote Palestinian rights. The Biden administration is, the Trump administration did not. You know, they tried to make some moves towards peace that weren't very successful, and neither, frankly, is Biden, even though it's a different approach. But um, so yeah, the Palestinians are kind of getting lost in, in a lot of the shuffle. They're certainly being overshadowed by these events. Mm -hmm. And then there are also a few other countries entangled in some of the broader regional and geopolitical tensions and conditions here. Mm -hmm. Would you mind touching a bit on those and how they're involved in this situation? Yeah, for sure. And you know, we already talked, I already mentioned like Iran, Iran's mm -hmm. a key player here. Um, again, uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, in theory, have this peace deal through China. The U.S. was very upset when this happened. I, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, in part because I think it's really only about Yemen. I think both Iran and the Saudis want out of Yemen to some extent, and there's been somewhat of a long 
ish ceasefire there now. Oh, there's still a lot of violence at the really low level. Um, and so China sort of saw an opportunity and, and jumped in there. The, the Iranians and the Saudis still have zero trust for one another and are at sort of deep, you know, regional political competition. China is the big kind of unknown here, right? Like China brokered that deal. Many pundits were like, oh, this is China announcing their presence in the Middle East. China doesn't, China wants oil out of the Middle East. They don't want anything else. They don't give a damn about anything else, right? They've seen the US fail here now for 50 plus years. The last thing they want to do is get diplomatically involved in this swamp. They want to make sure the oil's still flowing to run their economy. But at this point, that's that's their interest. And so they feel like if they can get some investment, if they can get market opportunities, if they can get oil, they'll do it. But don't believe for a minute that China thinks they're gonna come in and like solve the Middle East peace problem and that they're gonna get Israel and the Palestinians together. Like never happened. They don't care about this. They have no interest in doing this. For them, it really is self-interest. Um, and I will say a little bit of that self-interest is like sticking it to the US a little bit, um, but but this is a, a pure economic opportunity for them. The other you know, interesting country in this part of the world is Turkey. And 20 years ago, Turkey and Israel sort of had a very quiet peace with each other, very supportive, good amounts of trade, lots of you know, educational exchanges, diplomatic exchanges. And then as Erdogan has really consolidated his power in Turkey, they become increasingly critical of Israel to the point where now Israel and Turkey are not doing that much together. Um, Israel was not horribly happy about some of the things Turkey was doing in Syria during the civil war there. Um, and again, like Erdogan's just public rhetoric about Israel um, has not made Israel happy. And so there's sort of some, some tension there. So I won't say they're actively hostile towards one another, but there's a lot of tension between Turkey uh, and Israel, which has really changed. Turkey's trying to, again, position itself as sort of this bridge to the Middle East, which they are, right, geographically, certainly. Um, and they're just trying to, Erdogan's trying to do that a little more diplomatically, make himself kind of a political leader of the region. Yeah, a question that comes to mind for me is like, as you said, like some of these uh, Middle Eastern countries, they're only interested in helping Palestinians to look good politically, and all it is is cutting checks. Mm -hmm. um, so as Israel has certainly been growing in terms of diplomacy, mm -hmm. and has definitely been making more diplomatic allies, um, what interest is there for countries to help Palestine mm -hmm. um, as Israel grows ever so powerful and will continue to outgrow Palestine economically for sure? Absolutely. Um, because as you said, Palestine is pretty much a humanitarian crisis at yeah. this point. What interest is, is there other than political to help mm -hmm. Palestine? Well, right. I mean, that's the hard question. And, and you know, it's, it's really about what some countries view uh, as, you know, just a kind of a moral issue, right, as much as anything else. You know, the leaders on this, or say the, the leading institution on this that tries to really help and champion the Palestinian side are, is the EU, right, it's the European Union. And they have been the ones sort of aggressively pushing against Israel and settlement activity. You know, a lot of, you know, I know there's a active, like, divestment movement in the U.S., although it's, Kind of tepid at best. I think in, in Europe it's much more active. The EU has been much more open with its criticism of Israel, um, and so I think if if anyone if the Palestinians are kind of looking to any at, to anyone to help them out, I think right now it's the EU. I think they hope the U.S. will kind of return to to helping, um, but 
Yeah, I mean, as again, as I said earlier, like they kind of are on their own a little bit at this point. I think the EU is behind them. I think the U.S. does do some things to try to help them out. And look internally, and and, and this is not. I mean, look, the Palestinians have made some poor decisions too along the way. It can't all just be, you know, put on Israel or the U.S. or or Saudi Arabia or anyone else. Like, it, it, and it, it, to me, the tragedy, for example, of Gaza is, you know, you've got, um, you know, you've got Palestinian Islamic Jihad there. Um, you have Hezbollah and Hamas active there, um, Hamas in particular. Um, and the, but the people, like they're, and yes, people come out and they protest Israel and they throw things at the troops and, and they launch rockets, right? And they use some of the humanitarian aid to make military equipment that they then launched Israel. Absolutely true. Um, but kind of, you have to ask yourself, like the rank and file person in Gaza or in the West Bank and Ramallah, you know, in Nablus, like, what are their incentives, right? Like they don't see Israel helping them out. They don't see anyone helping them out, but these service oriented groups like Hamas. And they frankly don't want to live under Hamas. Many of them do not want to live under Hamas. And in fact, you know, there's more and more reports coming out of places like Gaza of, you know, small scale protests, which of course then the people end up disappearing. Um, you know, so that's not a good situation either. The Palestinian Authority is incredibly corrupt. Um, there's a very famous political scientist who actually teaches part-time in the U.S. and part-time at Berzade who does polling of Palestinians. A few years ago, he had this poll on right of return where he showed that actually a lot of Palestinians living abroad don't want to return. And he was like beaten, like he was ransacked in his academic office. Like they came into his department, pulled him out and like beat him and burned all of his reports because that's not what the Palestinian Authority wanted to hear, right? And so he's punished for that. Like that's not, that's not good either. So. And this is the problem, both the Israelis and the Palestinians can point to thousands of episodes on each side where it's like neither side's behaving that well. And so it just becomes this like long running, I mean, it's been this terrible uh, protracted conflict. And I think you make a great point. I don't, without, the Palestinians don't have much leverage, you know, from a purely like academic IR, poli sci 140, what we learn, right? Like. The Palestinians just don't have much leverage right now, and it's hard to imagine how they're going to get that other than some kind of normative argument. Yeah, so let's talk about kind of political divisions in the U.S., which you did mm. kind of briefly mm -hmm. mention, and how, you know, it's Biden now, but it could very well not be Biden yeah. soon, right? Yeah. And how that kind of might impact... Um, both these negotiations aren't going right now, but also just the future stability in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, look, uh, Trump was obviously incredibly unpopular uh, among the Palestinians and some of the Arab states, but he was also very popular in some of the Arab states by their leaders, for sure, and, uh, and Israel. You say the same thing for George W. Bush, you know, as much as people look at the Gulf War, you know, the second Gulf War and have strong feelings about the Bush administration in this country, like right in the, the center of, of, of Jerusalem, there's George W. Bush Square, right, sitting right there, right? I mean, very popular. Um, now, the real question to me, and I will say I had not really thought this through a lot until I was talking to people there this summer, because they're also thinking about, I mean, everyone in the region is thinking about this too, like. If, if it's going to be Biden or Trump or even someone else, right? Um, what does that mean? And I mean, honestly, you know, I, I do think 
the Saudis are interested. The Saudis have a slight preference, I think, for Trump because the Trump administration is not going to pay, in my opinion, a lot of attention to kind of the human rights concerns, right? They'll pay attention to some of this, especially the religious freedom stuff, but they won't they won't put up as many roadblocks on that side. You know, you know, Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which, by the way, the Israelis did not ask for, right? This was driven by U.S. domestic political concerns, right? And, um, which is a whole other topic, you know, interesting topic. Um, and so, so, but, but, you know, Trump was very good to Israel. He was not, you know, the Palestinians, he basically presented the Palestinians a peace deal that was written without any of their input. You know, and so like they're not looking forward to a potential Trump administration. But, you know, honestly, if Trump was in office, you might see some of this peace stuff accelerate a little bit, because I think some of the conditions that Biden is going to be putting on some of these actors, um, you know, won't be there with Trump. I, there was a hilarious thing in um, I think it was the Jerusalem Post last week that there was a rumor that one of the things that the Biden administration was trying to work on was like, OK, if you get a peace deal with the Saudis, one condition of it would be that like Netanyahu has to go, right? That they hold new elections. Now, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think the U.S. would ever actually demand that. But it was sort of an interesting, you know, it's like what's fascinating. I, I will say from an academic standpoint, this whole current situation of like the kind of quiet peace negotiations, et cetera, there's a real public diplomacy angle here. You know, the, the reason that everyone's talking about this now has to, I mean, people were already on the back burner talking about this, but the reason this became a front burner issue was that Tom Friedman wrote a column, right, this summer. And he said, I was just talking to President Biden, and guess what he told me, right? So what's going on? Biden, so they called, I'm sure they called Friedman to the off, to the White House, and are like, we want to float this tribal balloon. Let's see how people react to this. You know, the Jerusalem Post probably had an advisor from some political party say, hey, why don't you write this editorial, and let's see how this goes over. Right? And so there's a lot of this public posturing. The Saudis can't say anything publicly about this. That's the other interesting thing I didn't say, right? The Saudi government kind of relies on its public support as much as it needs it, right, as a monarchy, by being very anti-Israeli, right? Like, you know, the, the school, although, again, this is something the MBS is trying to change. You know, the classic education system in Saudi is very anti-Israeli. Right? And so they have these generations of Saudis growing up being anti-Israeli. For then the government to stand up and say they're our friends now, how do they sell that? So they've been trying to keep all of this on the down low as much as possible, which is why a lot of the stuff is getting floated in like opinion pieces and, oh, Tom Friedman talked to so-and-so or this reporter talked to so-and-so, right? And so um, because people just want to see how it reacts. They're all trial balloons, which is kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read the Friedman pieces in prep for this, so uh -huh. glad that you brought them up. Um, you mentioned this earlier. We understand that you recently went on a trip to Israel. Would you mind telling us a bit more about your trip and what you were doing while you were there? Um, and to what extent was this possible Saudi-Israel deal a topic of mm. your discussion on your trip? Great. Yeah. So um, I go to Israel and the West Bank almost every year. Um, and I go, I, I, I both go because I have colleagues there, both in, in Ramallah and in, and in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Um, uh, and then I also take uh, part of that trip as a, I help lead a group of 20, 25 political science professors from around the world. And most of which are, none of which are Middle East experts. They're sort of everything. In fact, this time there were folks who were political scientists like international relations scholars. There were historians. Um, there was an art history professor on, 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 on a trip. Um, and 
you know, one of the things I found early on teaching was that it's hard to teach. I mean, I have a little bit of background in Middle East politics in my undergrad and some of my grad, but most people who don't, don't want to touch this region with the 10 foot pole because people, it turns out, feel very strongly about this on one side or the other, you know, not, which is understandable. Um, and so people just won't teach it. And so one of the things that I think is that if you take people there, and again, we meet, so we meet with academics, we meet with policymakers, um, but with Palestinian policymakers from the PA, we meet with Palestinian NGOs, we meet with Israeli NGOs, right? We just meet with a whole, we try to meet with a whole cross-section. We actually meet with, we go to, we meet with some settlers, right? We try to meet with some, some ultra-Orthodox. Um, we uh, met an amazing journalist from Gaza this time. Um, and so we really try to get a massive cross-section of people and just get perspective, right? Like, what do they think at the moment? And a lot of them are bringing this up, this peace deal up. The interesting take from the Israelis was that they see, they think this is like Netanyahu's like thing. We saw this in the U.S. with Clinton and the Palestinians, right? Clinton, more than anything else, wanted to seal his legacy with a, a Palestinian-Israeli permanent peace deal, not just the also interim agreement. And he failed. And even he, right, has remarked, he saw this as a failure, view of failure of him and his presidency, right? So I think Netanyahu feels like if he could just check this box, right, this would be his legacy to the country for the rest of time, right? And they wouldn't remember him for corruption, they would remember him for blah, 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 they'd remember him for the Saudi peace deal. Um, and so that's why the Israelis were, I wouldn't say bullish, but they were like, yeah, this might actually happen. Like, we could see this getting pulled off because he really wants this, and then people will forget that you know, he maybe should be in jail. Yeah, uh, so what do you think? Will Biden broker a deal in the time he has left in office, be that the first term or both? Mm -hmm. um, and if so, what's the best case scenario for the region as a whole? Um, but also like who, who wins the most mm -hmm. on that deal and who loses? Well, I can tell you who likely loses is the Palestinians, right? As we said earlier, I think they would be the number one loser and they see themselves as the number one loser of this deal. Now. Already there's this kind of narrative in Israel and even among some of the Arab governments like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, uh, you know, this allows us to then put more direct pressure on Israel because we have relations with them now to do this. And it's like, okay, I haven't exactly seen Egypt or Jordan doing much of this in there or Morocco, you know, in their, in their normalization with Israel. Um, but maybe, maybe you can't rule it out. Um, you know, the winners would be Netanyahu in the current government, you know, um, the winners would be um, MBS, you know, just, you know, I think this would be really cementing MBS's leadership in, this, in Saudi as much as, it, I mean, he already has it there, but this would only reinforce that. It would it reinforce the Saudis potentially as a much more global player, which they want to be. Um, and so now the U.S., I think, would win from this too in the sense of the optics. Biden certainly would win, right? This would give him a huge foreign policy win. Um, because the people who would be the losers, you know, Palestinians, um, Turkey, I think, would be a loser out of this, possibly Egypt, are people that the U.S. Form, U.S. public doesn't care that much about. You know what I mean? It's not like this deal would look bad for some group that's very powerful in the United States, something like that. You know what I mean? So I think, I think Biden would be a winner. I think it's a logistics, you know, I think it's kind of a logistics problem of like, okay, what we know what the issues are. And, you know, how does each side relatively weight their issues such that they're willing to compromise on it? And can, you know, I will say the one scenario you could see the U.S. and Biden or Trump, whoever it might be, losing is if there has to be a massive 
payout. I mean, that's the continuing criticism of the Camp David deal from 79, is that, you know, the USA package to Israel and Egypt is, and it's still massive, and it all goes back to Camp David, right? So if we were having to pay, you know, billions of dollars in aid to Israel and the Saudis, I think that would be hard for a lot of Americans to swallow. And so if that's part of the deal, yeah, I think that's going to be difficult um, politically to sell in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Even if Biden did broker a deal and we had to send something to the Senate, is there like strict party lines on this or how do you think that would go? Would mm. that pass given our current or like maybe a future political situation where the Senate, the makeup of the Senate changes in 2024? Right. So this is an interesting question. Now, it's a great question. Let me first tackle it by saying it's not clear to me that if this is a treaty between the Saudis and the Israelis that the U.S. Senate would have to pass muster okay. on it. Now, again, it depends what the U.S. was committing to. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're committing to the defense of Saudi Arabia against Iran, yes, absolutely. The Senate would have to advise and consent on that, give advice and consent on that. Um, would it go down on party lines? I don't think, I mean, Israel, Israel is something where you get a lot of agreement across both parties. I'd say traditionally, Democrats were much more firmly behind Israel, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. Republicans were a little more critical. I mean, it was the George H.W. Bush administration was the first administration to really cut Israeli aid because of settlements. So there was always this tension between the Republican Party and Israel. But of course, then, frankly, then Obama comes along and really tries to stick it to Netanyahu in several ways, right? And so then all of a sudden, Democrats start to abandon Israel a little bit and Republicans move into that space. So we've had a little bit of a shift, but there's still a lot of that history there, right? Where you could see, you know, um, Republicans, enough Republicans and Democrats getting together to, to do that. But I could also see a situation where if the U.S. is just providing some aid or some other kind of pecuniary or, you know, just monetary enticement that it becomes an executive, if he tries to do it vis-a-vis an executive order, right? If there's no long-run commitment from the U.S., it's not clear to me why this would need to be a treaty on the U.S. side, or that we would need to ratify it. But maybe, again, it depends on the design of the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, is there anything that we should talk about that we have not touched on yet today? Oh, all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> no, uh, other parts of the world, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, yeah. Now, um... <laughs> all anyone was talking about at this university all summer mm. or AI and chat GPT um, which is good uh, we gotta have that gotta have that discussion um, uh, no I mean I think for the region you know it's interesting I think the next six to nine months are gonna be really interesting uh, we didn't talk about Ukraine like, um, uh, but yeah so um, my prediction would be if this is gonna happen I think it's gonna happen in the next six to nine months I mean the, the Israeli domestic political situation that you really have to keep your eye on and what the court's gonna decide later this month on this first law, what the response of the government is. If the government, if the court throws the law out and the government defend, the government basically goes against the Supreme Court, I think the U.S. will withdraw its support for the peace deal. I think the, the Biden administration will just walk away and say, like, Israel is not a faithful actor in this, which is funny. I mean, not funny, but it's like, it's not about being an unfaithful actor towards the Saudis. It's about being a government that we don't want to help, right, from the U.S. side. Um, barring that, you know, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that the center left is frustrated about in Israel is that polls right now show that the current government would not stand a chance of being reelected. I mean, 
you know, they would get like 30, 35, 35 to maybe at the outside 40% of the vote, like very unpopular. But yet, someone has to call elections, right? And there's no one, they have a strong enough majority that even if a couple defect from the party, they still wouldn't have elections. And so the coalition seems pretty entrenched right now. Um, I think the one thing that could undo that is some kind of a, and again, it's a weird situation to think about, the military, right? And, you know, if this were happening in some developing country, we'd call this a military coup, right? But it, here, because a lot of Americans would like the fact to get written, rid of Netanyahu, we will call it that, we'll call it something else, like corrected. But from a, from a theoretical standpoint, it's like, okay, like this just happened in Niger and we're wringing our hands over it, right? What if it happens in Israel? Um, and, you know, again, a decade ago, this was all unthinkable. So who knows? This is all changing very quickly. But, yeah. Perfect. We do. We always like to end with some fun letter questions. All right. Um, okay. Fair enough. And, you know, chair of the political science department, yep. you told us what students have to look forward to. But what are you personally most excited about this year? Uh, what am I excited about this year? Well, I really am excited about hiring new colleagues. Like, this is fun. Like, you know, like getting new new faculty and they become collaborators, they become advisors to students, and so that's that's super exciting. Um, what else am I looking forward to? Um, I always love, you know, I love teaching 140. I love teaching the intro class that just started this week. So so that's super exciting to be to be getting in getting back into that. Um, I was really tired after that. You know, I always forget, especially after the summer. You, know, you see these professors standing up there talking. It's like, we don't have our sea legs yet, you know. We see you guys flagging after about 40 minutes, and you're like, I'm tired, I want to go to sleep. We are too. We're just like, oh, man, give me a, give me a cot up here. I need a, I need a rest. Um, so, so but yeah, so look forward to teaching. Look forward to doing some recruiting. Um, I'm really bummed, you know, uh, uh, we have this poli-sci band thing, and um, what our drummer is is Mark Koplovich, and Mark's off in Berlin this year. So, um we, we forced him to sit in a room for like a day and a half and record his drum parts. Uh, and so we're going to try to record around those now and, and figure that out. But, um, but yeah, we miss, we miss you, Mark, if, you, if you're listening. So, um, yeah, please come back from Berlin. Well, it certainly sounds like an exciting year. Um, thank you so much again for joining us. This has been a very interesting and thought-provoking discussion. And as always, we're just so grateful to have you back on the pod. Sure. Thanks for having me.